Good morning. I'm Chris Williams, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today we're talking about surveillance and the different ways people watch each other. We'll also talk about movie spies and how they've shaped our expectations when it comes to gadgetry. First up, a story about surveillance cameras in New York City. The police say they're effective crime-fighting tools, but many people fear their privacy. Surveillance cameras are the all-seeing eyes on city streets. But how much is too much? WFUV's Connor Ryan has more. It was a routine Thursday night in June. Rainy, and for the most part quiet, much like any other. Alfonso Melendez, a native of the Bronx, decided before bed he would run across the street to get a soda. The trip was supposed to be quick. The route, second nature. Melendez walked out of his apartment building on 184th Street to go to the small deli he always went to on 183rd Street. But as he stood feet from his home, waiting for the light to change, Melendez was struck and thrown into the air by a dark red minivan that seemed to come flying out of nowhere. He was treated at St. Barnabas Hospital, but died early the next morning. He was 49. In an interview almost two weeks after the accident, his wife, Brenda Pagan, sits in the apartment she once shared with her husband and cringes at the thought of what happened. I waited and waited. He never came back up. So then I just went to sleep, and around 1 o'clock in the morning, TMT came knocking on the door telling me about that he was in the hospital in critical condition. But perhaps the most tragic part of this story for Melendez's family is the fact that the driver of the minivan is still on the road and unidentified. Their only hope in finding justice, a couple seconds of videotape. Jose Carrasquillo, Melendez's son-in-law, says after the New York Police Department failed to collect any video from the scene, he started knocking on doors. Unexpectedly, he found the entire event was captured by a camera used in a deli. In fact, it was the same deli Melendez was walking to when he was killed. We're pretty lucky and happy that something was caught on tape to at least a point where we can see exactly what happened and, you know, it wasn't his fault. It was disgusting. Carrasquillo says he's confident the police will be able to find the person responsible, but only because of the video he discovered. He says there should be more police-operated surveillance cameras on street corners everywhere, but especially in the Bronx. It's good to, you know, walk down the street and know something, even if you're by yourself in the middle of the night, dead dark, that there's something watching over you that if something does happen to you, the person that's responsible for it won't get away with it. In time, they will be caught. To the question of whether New Yorkers agree with him, the answer seems clear. 82% of city voters support the increase of surveillance cameras, according to a poll released in May by Quinnipiac University. But to the seemingly simple question of how many cameras there are on city streets today, the answer is far more complicated. Chris Dunn, an associate legal director for the New York Civil Liberties Union, focuses on the privacy aspect of surveillance camera use. He says a lack of public knowledge in this area is precisely the problem. Nobody knows what the actual rules are. Nobody knows how they're actually using the information. And there is not a reason in the world why a system of this magnitude and these sorts of privacy implications, there's no external check whatsoever. The NYCLU counted 4,468 public and private cameras in lower Manhattan alone in 2006. Police Commissioner Ray Kelly confirmed for New York Public Radio in April 
that the NYPD has access to at least 6,000 cameras across New York City. He said between 10 and 15 percent of them are so-called smart cameras, that is, cameras that operate using algorithms to quickly identify unattended bags or group people by clothing color. Dunn says studies suggest surveillance cameras move crime from one neighborhood to another, but don't actually reduce the overall crime rate. There's no question that surveillance cameras, or just cameras in general, um, can be very effective in some circumstances in solving crimes after they've happened. Um, and the Boston Marathon bombing is a perfect example of that. And that's all to the good. And, and that's, that, that is a very big plus to these systems. Uh, that does not mean, though, that there cannot be reasonable privacy protections built into these systems. Limits on how long the police keep video footage, limits on who has access to the videos, limits on who the videos are shared with, those are the kinds of protections Dunn is looking for. He says the distinction between cameras operated by private businesses, like delis, and those operated by the NYPD is getting smaller every day. For most purposes, whether they're private or public no longer makes much difference because the police have access to all of them. The NYPD declined to provide any information or comment for this story and gave no explanation as to why they didn't want to talk. But I asked Commissioner Kelly during an unrelated press conference to comment on the NYPD's use of cameras. It helps us immeasurably in helping give us information to arrest people who have uh, committed crimes. So, I mean, for us, it's a, it's a no-brainer, and uh, we're going to continue to uh, expand our use of cameras. When pushed on the issue of privacy... Every time it's polled, people, uh, over 80 percent, say they're, they're not concerned about it. So I think it's, a, it's an old issue. But that response doesn't sit well with those who pray at the Masjid Ad-Taqwa Mosque in Brooklyn. In fact, the local community, predominantly Muslim, joined forces with the American Civil Liberties Union and the New York Civil Liberties Union to file a lawsuit against the NYPD. Amid their allegation of a widespread unwarranted surveillance program they say began shortly after 9-11, sits a camera marked with the NYPD seal aimed at the front entrance of the mosque. It's been there since at least 2004. Fundamentally, what we're talking about is the right to privacy, the right to think and worship freely. So, so I, I don't think this is an old issue at all. That's Ramsey Kassem, an attorney involved in the suit and a law professor at the City University of New York. He says the camera's presence in the community has had a, quote, chilling effect. People felt that they were under surveillance when all they wanted to do was go worship at uh, at their house of worship. People were afraid of ending up in secret police files for no reason and being placed under surveillance for absolutely no reason. The mosque's leadership declined to be interviewed and congregants seemed nervous to talk about the issue. Kassem says that feeling of suspicion has become greater over the last few years. The camera was just put up. Uh, there was no statement as to why the camera was being put up, no statement as to the NYPD's intentions. So there's a great, that fosters a great deal of distrust when it's done in that way, when it's done in a way that signals to that community that the NYPD is not protecting or serving them, the NYPD is viewing them with suspicion. But that's not to say Kassem wants cameras eliminated completely. Just like any law enforcement method, they have to be used selectively, they have to be used precisely, they have to be used intelligently. You can't just throw out a dragnet. And I think when you look at the Muslim surveillance program, that's a dragnet where you're targeting people not based, or you're targeting not, not just people, but entire communities. Back in the Bronx, Jose Carrasquillo turns to face his mother-in-law, now a widower. 
he grips the only real chance they say they have of finding the person responsible for killing the family's patriarch, Alfonso Melendez. You know, if there was no surveillance there, we wouldn't even be where we are today. There'll be no closure for her. There'll be no, oh, it'll be all right. He will be caught because how can we even go about saying something like that if there's no surveillance? Experts say as the cost of surveillance technology goes down, more and more cameras will be sprouting up on city streets. In Queens alone, $2 million has been set aside for the installation of 57 more surveillance cameras within the next year. Borough President Helen Marshall says, despite what anyone may say, quote, the camera doesn't lie. I'm Connor Ryan, WFUV News. My thanks to WFUV's Connor Ryan for his report on New York City surveillance cameras. This is Chris Williams on 90.7 WFUV, and today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about surveillance and spies. The city has cameras on the streets, but some New Yorkers keep cameras inside their homes for personal reasons. To find out more about this, I decided to visit a store in Manhattan that specializes in surveillance gear. Spy Store NYC is located on West 4th Street in the village. But once you step inside, you won't find the top-secret high-tech gadgets found in the Batcave or a James Bond film. In fact, many of the things behind the glass cabinets are regular household items. Or so they appear. The spy store sells lots of items that don't look suspicious, but can be used for surveillance. As store owner Bob Leonard tells me, it's not the size of the camera that matters, it's where you hide it. Among the store's many items are a hollowed-out book, a trick water bottle, and even a pair of glasses with a camera built in. Leonard has owned the store for 25 years. We talked about some of the equipment and what his customers expect when they walk through the door. Before working here, did you work in private security? I was a New York City cop before here. Yeah. And before that, I was, in, uh, I was a telephone repairman. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was uh, in the Marine Corps as a kid. I was a telephone man. I wound up in Marine Corps intelligence, uh, reconnaissance, things like that. So this is, about, this is about what I've been doing since I'm 19. So have you always been interested in this kind of stuff and in in equipment like this, or is, is it just something that you found yourself getting into? Uh, it's just where I wound up, uh -huh. you know what I mean? Yeah. That's uh, what I know about. People started paying me for it, and that's about that. Okay. So do you make any of the equipment here? Uh, we do. We customize equipment. We, in the past, we did make it from scratch, but that was long before you could buy a hidden camera, you know, uh, in a clock radio. We had to make our own for years. Some wireless cameras were made from scratch with resistors and uh, transmitters and so on like that. You know, and, it, and it was much, much more expensive in those days. What are some of your most popular products? What do people come in here and buy more than others? Well, it's, not the, it's a variation of products, meaning that the hidden camera world is um, used for, obviously, the, the nanny cameras, but you have a lot of people with uh, the elderly. They need cameras on them because their attendants sometimes don't do the right thing with them. They rip them off or abuse them, and we hear from customers uh, just about weekly that our cameras caught somebody doing the wrong thing. Uh, not to mention you have security cameras for loss prevention, theft, uh, and security. So uh, there's a long, var big variation of what kind of cameras and what they're used for. Uh, there's other products to detect cameras. If you want to go to your home and de detect a camera, we have equipment for that. And uh, if you want high-end recordings where you don't have to have a microphone in someone's face, 
we have that too. Mm -hmm. So do you ever ask customers what they're going to use the equipment for? Or? No, we don't ask, but a lot of customers tell you because if they tell us their situation, it's much easier for us to apply our knowledge to help them and what they need to accomplish the, the uh, get results from their situation, you know? So they do tell us. They tell us everything. They tell us stuff we don't want to hear uh, sometimes, and they tell us things they, that are very personal and sometimes, uh, you know, crazy, you know, tragic life. It's husband-wife things, girlfriend-boyfriends, inheritances, splitting up a will, uh, business partners, uh, who's screwing who, you know what I mean, who's ripping the other guy off, and so on. So, yes, they do tell us. Uh, we don't really ask because that's one of our models. We don't really ask, but they'll tell us. So do you have equipment that will counteract other equipment? That's the big... Uh, people request that, but that's because they watch too much television or they watch Hollywood. I call it Hollywood. They have cell phone jammers, uh, and a lot of tracking devices and high-end bugs use cell phones' frequency as a means to communicate. But cell phone jammers are not legal in the United States. So uh, they, people ask for them a, a little bit. You know, uh, a funeral parlor will ask for them. A church will ask for them. A conference room will ask for them. You know what I mean? But you don't. It's not a product we can sell. Um, so that's basically a, that's a jammer. You know what I mean? To um, stop, if you, we have a piece of equipment that if you were to sit in a room and I can tell you 100% nobody can tape you, I do have that product. It requires wearing headphones, which go to a base unit, all click in, and that's all, those headphones, which go to the base unit, scrambles the conversation and masks the room. So that will 100% make your conversation uh, secure. So you mentioned Hollywood. Do you think that people have certain misconceptions about what equipment like this can do? Do you think that they kind of have this romanticized idea of, you know, have some, like a camera the size of a, a yeah, flea? Exactly. Mm -hmm. I tell people, listen, uh, I want a little teeny camera. Little teeny camera doesn't matter. How it's disguised matters. So... And cameras all need battery. So I tell people, it needs a battery. If you leave a flashlight on overnight, it's got two big D-cell batteries, you don't have anything in the morning. Then, then again, how long is that battery going to last? Because some products only last for an hour or two hours on battery because it's recording and it's taking images, you know? It's, cameras work. So, yeah, people are sometimes, I call them Hollywood. Is there a certain piece of equipment that impresses you more than the others? There's a lot of impressive equipment and people don't know about and people have no clue about, but it doesn't impress me because I've been doing it so long. You know what I'm saying? It's like asking a butcher, what's the best steak? You know, whatever. You know, it's, uh, it's hard. But that little piece of equipment I told you about, which secures your conversation 100% in a conference room or in a meeting or a portable situation, sometimes somebody will walk in with a recorder. Like, we'll go into locations and sweep rooms and sweep offices. We do that as a for major uh, corporations and individuals also. But when I leave, what happens then? Some guy comes in, slaps a little transmitter in the place, or somebody walks in with a recorder. But that little piece of equipment I told you about, uh, which we uh, jokingly refer to as the cone of silence, like in Get Smart or whatever, you know? 
but that cone of silence impresses me because 100%, the only way I, I can tell someone I guarantee that they cannot be recorded is with that. Or else I tell a guy, go to the deep end of the pool, up to your neck, and talk there. That's about it. Bob Leonard says people come into a shop all the time with movie notions about what surveillance equipment can do. To find out more about movie spies, I spoke to Al Oster. He's a communications professor at Fordham University's Lincoln Center campus in Manhattan. How would you characterize a spy in, in films? Is there a certain type of portrayal that we see more often than not? The spy you've seen most often in films since he's been in 24 films is James Bond. And that is not a very real, realistic uh, notion of spydom. Uh, uh, essentially, it's technology and beautiful women. Um, and um, that's the, the most frequent character that's been in, you know, a spy in films. I wouldn't say he's the most realistic, and I hesitate to use that word even with the James Bond films in terms of spying. Um, there have been other kinds of spy films that are, uh, let us say, more... Um, naturalistic or realistic in terms of their portrayal of spies and what spies do and how they behave. And, and, and that's generally been uh, things like John le Carre's films that have been made from John le Carre's novels. And, and also um, Alfred Hitchcock, obviously, has been most famous for portraying spies in his film. There's no real definition because one of the things about spy films is they vary in terms of history. In other words, during the Cold War, there were a lot of films about the Cold War and Russian spying and American spying, et cetera, et cetera. Now the films tend to be more about terrorism and the spies happen to be involved in some kind of, uh, at least the American films, uh, some sort of uh, struggle against uh, terrorists. So... When films were coming out during the Cold War and portraying, you know, Russian spies, do you feel like that could have contributed to the Red Scare and, and kind of all of that going on in the 50s? Um, I think the Red Scare in America had a lot to do with politics. It had a lot to do with ideology. Um, the films kind of reflected that more than they essentially had a causal effect on it. Although um, there were some films that were very, very good about portraying the Cold War struggle, things like Pie, The Spy That Came In From the Cold, Tinker Tailor, The Soldier Spy, that, those kind of films. But I, I, I don't see them as causing the Red Scare at all. I mean, they may have impacted it by um, essentially piling on, if you want, you know, that kind of image on what was already going on in politics and in international events. So it was more of a public perception sort yeah. of thing. Are there any particular spies or spy films that you are fond of personally? One of the great spy film directors is, of course, Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, my favorite film of all the Alfred Hitchcock films, I wouldn't say it's my favorite film of all of them, but in terms of his five films, it's North by Northwest which is a brilliant film, not only in terms of its narrative, but also in its aesthetics. And uh, people sort of remember scenes from it, like the uh, Mount Rushmore, and of course the a scene in the field in uh, Dakota when the plane is uh, chasing after Cary Grant. But it's the most inventive and probably the most interesting of all Hitchcock's films. So that's the one I, I recall most in terms of Hitchcock. 
And Cary Grant, though, he's not a spy. He's being hunted, correct? Yes, he's an ad executive by the name of Roger Thornhill who is uh, misidentified, you know, in uh, a famous scene in the very beginning of the film where he makes a, you know, he wants to call his mother because he's made a date with his mother and he realizes that she won't get the message because she's at a bridge game with her cronies. And when somebody yells out the name, I forget, it's George, uh, I forget the name right now, he answers and the uh, spies think he's that guy and they, of course, kidnap him and that brings on uh, the events of the film. And that's a particular um, Hitchcock kind of theme in, his, in the sense that it's the theme of an innocent man um, who's not a spy, who's enveloped in this grandiose plot that and conspiracy that gets him involved with uh, all sorts of foreign espionage, et cetera, et cetera, and, and grand conspiratorial scenes. Um, it goes back to Hitchcock's... Um, British period when he made films like uh, 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes and The Man Who Knew Too Much, which are all similar in, in that kind of um, theme, uh, theme of the innocent man who gets involved in this vast conspiracy involving spies and spying. What would you say is the biggest difference between men being portrayed as spies and women? Or is there a difference? I don't know. I mean, obviously women spies... Um, are always, it seems to me, portrayed in films as very beautiful, very sexual, very kind of attractive. Um, if you think of real-life spies, that was not the, truly the case. I can think of uh, a number of women, who, actual spies, who were, you know, not not sort of, uh, you know, Angelina Jolie, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but women uh, spies tend... Um, in those films to use their sexuality. But they're also skilled in tradecraft, as they say in, in spy novels and in the intelligence community. They know about how to send secret messages and meeting up with, uh, you know, their uh, cronies and handlers and et cetera, et cetera. So they're equally gifted in that regard, and they're equally gifted in films uh, with weaponry. So... Except for being portrayed as uh, very, very beautiful and so on and so forth, uh, that's probably not very much of a difference. Would you say that there's a disadvantage to portraying spies as larger than life in terms of public perception? Uh, yes, because it gives a very false image of what spying and, and, and intelligence is really about. Um, there was recently a, um, a TV series on um, public television called The Bletchley Circle, which is about women who were involved in an uh, intelligence agency during World War II that broke the German code, for instance. Um, and yeah, they were actresses and they were attractive, but what the, the, um, the series focused on was that they were very, very smart and, and didn't use their sexuality primarily. They used their intelligence and, and you know, solving a, an intelligence uh, dilemma, mystery, et cetera, et cetera. And that happened to be true in terms of, for instance, um, the uh, hunt for Osama bin Laden. I mean, uh, yeah, Jessica Chastain is a prototype of a woman who was very, very influential in, you know, hunting for Osama bin Laden and ultimately finding him. 
But then there was a documentary that was recently done on PBS, which was about the actual women who were involved in that particularly intelligence venture. And they were very, you know, they were attractive women. They weren't, you know, super sexy, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I mean, they just shot them from the head up, so I wouldn't know. But um, essentially, they were very smart, and they really were good at their jobs. And that's important because a lot of these kind of spy, the actual intelligence is involved with combing through reams of data, trying to piece together the dots in terms of a, an, an issue and and really using, you know, experience, intuition, and intelligence to solve a, 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 spe- a specific intelligence problem. So do you feel that... Um these types of films, maybe not so much now, but in the past kind of overemphasized the use of gadgets and technology and not so much the intelligence. Yes, I, I definitely do. I mean, ultimately, the, the most important intelligence gimmick or gadgetry is your brain. And that's the thing that really solves these issues more than anything else. Now, it's not a bad thing to have certain kind of technological kind of um, gadgets or uh, technolo- technological uh, apparatus at your disposal, um, they help. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, wiretapping and uh, all sorts of miniaturization in terms of uh, video, et cetera, helps. But it's not the be-all and end-all of the, you know, intelligence game. It's good to have those things, but everything, there's other things as well. Do you have a favorite Bond film or a favorite Bond? Yeah, Sean Connery, probably the early films, uh, Goldfinger, you know, things of that sort. So why do you think the the franchise has lasted so long? Because Bond is an interesting and attractive character. Um, And they've had a lot of good actors playing Bond. People love the gadgetry and the gimmickry, and I've had a lot of very, very beautiful actresses play the heroines in, in the film. I mean, it's like uh, a kid's cartoon for adults. There are certain other spies current that are, are kind of interesting in film. Um, the Bourne uh, trilogy and the, the, the recent uh, Bourne legacy are very interesting. For instance, in terms of what they tell us about how spy agencies function in terms of their uh, ability to acquire information about the outside world. You think people are more interested in watching uh, police at work rather than spies at work? And if so, why is that? Well, police are more directly involved in our lives. I mean, we see them all the time. Um, we read about murders and, and corruption and crime every day in the headlines and on TV. So it's much more immediate. And spying is uh, something that we know that goes on. Obviously, uh, since the Snowden uh, revelations, we know uh, what the extent of what's been going on. But um, it's much more removed. And um, while we, we're interested in what spies do, um, they're not in our immediate ken. I mean, we don't see them. We don't know them. Whereas you might know the cop on the beat, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, police are much more familiar in our lives, whereas spies are much further removed. Mm-hmm. 
Another aspect of spy films that we see a lot is sort of conspiracy. And just as an example, the X-Files, you know, two FBI agents working and kind of having to maneuver their way around higher-ups who are trying to keep stuff under wraps. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, how has that sort of fed public perception in terms of what the government's hiding from the people? Oh, I mean, it it feeds into it. I mean, uh, most Americans believe that, I'm not sure of this, but I I think most Americans believe that there are all sorts of conspiracies out there. I mean, a famous uh, historian by the name of Richard Hofstetter once wrote an article, a famous article called Paranoid Paranoid Style in American Politics. And so we've always had uh, in uh, America a great, great strain of feeling about conspiracy. Uh, and uh, I think we, uh, the films feed into that. Um, films about, uh, for instance, the Kennedy assassination, Oliver Stone's film on you know JFK and the uh, Garrison investigation. Um, uh, people still don't, still believe, or don't believe that the Warren Commission was the final word on, on what happened to John F. Kennedy. Um, so there's a whole element in spy films that feeds into that. I think if you think of the Maturian Candidate, think of your, your X-Files, all have a sense that, yeah, the government is hiding a great deal from us. And it probably is. My thanks to Fordham University professor Al Oster for talking to me about espionage in film. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can listen to Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up with past shows on our weekly podcast. Stay tuned. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.